This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and this evening we shall be bringing our studies in the book of Job to a conclusion. It is our habit at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together Isaiah chapter 60. Those of you who have followed in any measure the story of Job, or those of you who know it by just reading, will realise that just one sentence in that reading echoes some of the thoughts that we must have when we are concluding the study. The days of thy mourning shall be ended. Job went through a tremendous experience. He touched the very depth of sorrow and affliction, but they were eventually ended. There's many, a great number of themes in a book like Job that can never be touched upon in a series of studies like this. Some of them lend themselves rather to the study and the book and not to the spoken word. If you want to have some recreative study in a book like the book of Job, begin to go through it with regard to all the references that you'll discover with regard to natural phenomena. Think to yourself that Job didn't live in a day when we spoke of vitamins and electrons and nuclear fission and all these advanced scientific statements and then suddenly get a corrective. Will you realise how much of natural science is embedded in the words of the three friends and Job himself? Balancing of clouds and all the things to do with the animal creation and many other things with regard to metals and mining, I don't know what. It's a science, it's a study in itself and a great corrective to some of our thoughts about these early people and early days. <coughs> and then I was very conscious last week that the study which involves so much turning from one scripture to another, comparing this with that, is quite good as you sit at your desk and can be rather disconcerting when you know that the wheels are going round in the other room and all the gaps and rustlings go on uh, very much magnified and disproportionate. Well, we come now to the closing chapter. And in this closing chapter, we leave poetry and we come back to prose. You remember, the opening chapters of the book of Job are just in prose, giving historic facts. Then the third chapter starts with poetry. The day that Job said that he cursed the day that he was born. And now we get to the closing section. And that suggests that the poem of Job itself starts with chapter 3 and ends with the closing, the introductory words here. I don't think we need to believe that a miracle was wrought so that Job could put down in his own language and by his own hand how long he lived and when he died. I don't say that it's impossible that God should do that, but it doesn't seem probable. The probability is that the uh, opening chapters which give you the history and the closing chapter which gives you the history were penned, as far as I can understand, by Moses, who had the book before him when he was 40 years in Midian and came back with it 
as the first written testimony uh, before he put the book of Genesis onto parchment or whatever he wrote upon in those early days. Well now we'll just begin to look at the way in which this chapter uh, is opened. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That brings the testimony of Job to its conclusion. It's not a conclusion that you could visualize in the early section where we find the three friends and their arguments aggravating Job until he practically uh, vowed that if he got into the very presence of God himself he would maintain his integrity. And the reason was that these men were drawing upon tradition and human wisdom. And they argued uh, that whenever a person meets with a calamity, it must be that it's a punishment for sin. Well, you know, that has been exploded both in experience and in Scripture. Our Saviour took the same line when he warned some. He said, don't think that they were greater sinners than others upon whom the tower of Siloam fell. I don't think that uh, when a bombing raid comes over London that it's all the wicked people's houses that get bombed and all the good people's houses that get saved. If you want an exhibition, I don't know how it would affect you, stand at the other side of Morgan Station and look at the wholesale destruction that stretches out from you even right to the almost the vicinity of St Paul's Cathedral. But there's one building that stands untouched unscathed in all the bombing and the fierce fire that roared in that neighbourhood. It's Whitbread's Brewery. Now that either proves something or it doesn't. So you see, here's Job. He was listening to these arguments that proved he was a secret sinner. And the more they advanced them, the more he opposed them. But, he makes a great distinction between hearing with the ear and seeing with the eye. At last, a vision is granted to him that never can come any other way. And all his boosted righteousness collapsed. Elihu had prepared the way. You remember when Elihu stepped in when the others had finished? He says, if there be a messenger with him, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, and if you are evangelically minded and know the epistle to the Romans, you may be tempted to say that means to show unto man God's righteousness, because it's no good showing man's righteousness. But there are two things to remember. First is the word uprightness is never used in Job, and it's used many times, never used of God. Always used of the man. And secondly, the one thing that was necessary that Job should see was to see what his righteousness or his uprightness really was. And when he discovered it, he collapsed. So we've got uh, features here 
But that will be true of every one of us in our degree. It will be true of the people of Israel, which I believe uh, are in mind here now, although Israel didn't exist when Job went through his experiences. The man who edited it, Moses, was the man who was going to uh, grasp at everything that gave him some idea of what was going to happen to these people under his care. And you will find there are words used in this closing chapter which look down the prophets and are used concerning Israel as well as of Job himself. He was brought through ultimately. All his sufferings, his discipline was, as it were, experienced and bore fruit and here we have him at last. He says, I bore myself and repent. That's the key word of Israel's condition. John the Baptist didn't quote Job but he said repent. Our Saviour didn't quote Job but he said repent. Peter didn't quote Job but he started off his ministry in the Acts of the Apostles repent. And the prophet Zechariah says that one day they shall look upon him whom they pierced and they shall mourn for him that is national repentance. So we've got in this man Job's experience some of the problems that we have to face. The puzzle of the ages is not entirely solved. It's faced and we can see a little bit of its outworking. At the beginning, Job is pointed out as a perfect man. Not only upright, but perfect. And if you trace that word perfect, which is there used, you'll discover that it has to do with the seed of God. Strangely enough, although you may not suspect it at first, when you read in contrast with Esau, that Jacob was a plain man, you think, oh, Esau was ruddy and Jacob was nothing to look at. But the word is perfect. Exactly the same word that we have here in Job. Now, you and I wouldn't quite give that certificate to Jacob as being perfect because we have got another construction of the word. But Esau was a profane man and despised his birthright. And Jacob was a bit of a cheat, but he was after the true thing. And ultimately, ultimately, that man came out into the light and his name was changed to Israel, a prince with God. Although forever afterwards he was reminded of his weakness and infirmity, for like myself just now, he halted upon his thigh. That's what I'm doing. If you see me hobbling along a little bit, don't think I'm going back to hospital. It's only that I'm getting becoming a genuine antique. Well now, we come a little bit closer to the story. It says, And it was so, that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Elihaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job had. Now I think that comes as a surprise to us, if we're honest. Because without that corrective, we should have taken some of the things that Elihaz and the other friends said as being gospel truth. But he said no. Even though Job was saying things that he had to be corrected, Job was on the side that he could not possibly believe that God could be unrighteous or God could do these things that the wise men of this world had to attribute to him to make their ideas secure and carried forward. It's a, it's a rather humbling test for us to go through one of the chapters where Elihaz is speaking and then say to yourself, and when we've done with it, God says, you haven't said the right thing about me. Now, wherein does the wisdom of this world, represented by Elihaz and the others, differ from the wisdom of God? Well, now we've got the New Testament to tell us, haven't we? 
The wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world, has got everything in it except the one thing that matters, and that is the redemptive work of the Son of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. That which is foolishness in the eyes of God is the power of God unto salvation, and that's the one thing missing from Elijah's and the other two. But although Job, he said many things that he must have repented of afterwards, he did say that he at last came to see that he had a kinsman redeemer, that he would be raised from the dead at the long last. And Elihu comes forward and adds the bit concerning the ransom and the restoration. So there's your hour, three hours or four if you like. Resurrection, redemption, ransom. And Job's cry, all that there were a day's man between us. And Elihu saying, I am in answer to your quest. I am in God's stead. I am made of the same clay of yourself. I need not terrify you. Only shows you that that is the heart of the matter. It was true of Job. It's true of Israel. It's true of any Gentile believer today. The redemption, the mediation, and then the discipline. Why Job should have touched bottom as he did is one of the enigmas that is not solved. Why one person should, one person should go through such a welter of sorrow and another person almost escapes cot-free, has no, uh, no ability so far as we are concerned in our experience to give an answer why. But we know it takes place. But we do know this, that Job himself at last said, that although he didn't know, and he couldn't answer some of these questions, he said, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Or as the other one said in the Psalms, I shall be satisfied. Or, as the Apostle puts it, we are one day to be conformed to the image of his Son. It all comes to the same thing, only using different terms to express it. Well now, the next statement is of importance because it shows you that priesthood and sacrifice did not commence with the law of Moses any more than the law commenced with the law of Moses because you'll find that Abraham is spoken of by God as keeping his, test, his um, statutes and his laws although we haven't got any written that Abraham kept. What, what Moses did was to codify them and focus them in under the guidance of the Spirit of God so that they should form a complete guidance uh, typical to of the Saviour that was yet to come. But we see here that it says about Job, Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. Well, there you have that's very, very evident that these three men knew the principle of sacrifice, knew that the offerings were to be made and accepted long before the people of Israel came on the scene. And just by way of um, another passage, a parallel passage, you may remember when Balaam, at the request of Balak, went down to curse Israel. They went through an elaborate ritual before he went up the mountain to curse Israel, it says they had seven altars and they, they slew seven bullocks. And when 
Balaam had to admit, he said, oh, you brought me to curse, but I can't help it. He said, if he says, bless, I must bless. When he came back, they went through the whole rigmarole again, seven altars and seven more bullocks. So it evidently it was known to Moab and to Balaam and to these men long before the, what we call the Levitical law came in with its specified offerings. And then with regard to the priests. The word for priest in the, in the Old Testament is the word Kohen, which is one of the names of Israel. C-O-H-E-N. If you like uh, to, um, to observe where this word comes first of all, Genesis, the 14th chapter, is the first occurrence of a Kohen or a priest in the Old Testament. The uh, 14th chapter and the 18th verse. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. So the Most High God had a priest and evidently accepted in the type of Christ before Abraham, uh, before Isaac and before Jacob were born. And then in chapter 41 of Genesis, while we're looking at this term, chapter 41, verse 45, you will have another reference that could go with it. Genesis 41, 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath uh, Panir. Our subject is not uh, Genesis. And the, the authorised version uh, comment in the margin is now, it's not true. They forget. They didn't uh, have any knowledge of the hieroglyphics in the authorised version day. But Egyptian hieroglyphics are now as readable as any other language. And this word means bread of life. That's rather fine, isn't it? Joseph is given the Egyptian name, bread of life. But that wasn't my point. He gave to him wife, Athenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So he is a priest in Egypt. But a godly man like Joseph had no hesitation of marrying into his family. And then you may remember that in the, um, uh, in the days of Moses, uh, we, we read about uh, a priest. I don't know whether it's in Exodus chapter 2. Yes, Exodus chapter 2, in this very Midian, or where Job himself lived afterwards, or beforehand rather, in uh, Exodus 2.16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. He is a priest. And Moses marries into that priest's family. I think that's near enough for that, you see. Well, then you remember... You remember the prophecies that, that go before that Israel are going to be the priesthood. When they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and entered into that covenant with God and said, all that the Lord hath spoken we will do, God says, if you keep my commandments, you shall be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. And then if we uh, had read on in our prophecy of Isaiah and, and gone on to the 61st chapter, which we will turn to just now for a one reference. Uh, 
the 61st chapter and verse 6 or it says in verse 5 and strangers shall stand and feed your flocks and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers but ye shall be named the priests of the Lord men shall call you the ministers of our God they shall be called the priests of the Lord and in chapter 61 uh, verse 10 where it says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation he hath covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments now it's rather difficult to put this into English but the word there is a verbal form of the word Cohen uh, to put it literally, as a bridegroom priests it with his turban. Now that's not English, is it? But he's decking himself up as a bridegroom and he's priesting it with his turban because he's putting his turban on in some measure as though he were a priest. Now these are just by the way. Uh, but you'll see, the priesthood enters very much into Israel's expectation. And when Peter was writing his epistle, he addressed the scattered abroad, not the Gentiles. He said, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And at long last, under the terms of the new covenant, not under the terms of the old, the book of the Revelation opens with the words, unto him that loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us kings and priests unto God. I know it comes as a shock to some of God's people to discover that they are not a royal priesthood. But the priesthood is never predicated of the church of the Gentiles. It belongs to this people and to this people only. Well now we've got to come back to Job 42 and look at one or two other features of which are of importance. Verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Well now strictly speaking, Job was never in captivity to anyone. He was a prince. He was seized by this dreadful disease. But nobody held him captive. But this word is a foreshadowing of whether it was put there by Moses or not, uh, not for me to say but something that he saw in the experience of Job led him by the Spirit of God's guidance to put down a word which looked down the ages as to the condition of the people of Israel. Israel were never put into the same position as Job. Some of them suffered badly, some didn't. But they went through a captivity and this in some measure is a parallel. Shall we get this same expression just to guide us? Psalm 126 Psalm 126 and verse 1 verse 4 and verse 5 I wonder these inventors don't have some sort of self-opening Bible when you say the word would be a good idea wouldn't it if it just turned to the chapter. But here we found it, Psalm 126, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. You see the words? Job 
And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. And here the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. We were like men that dream. And again in verse uh, 4. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And uh, while we've got the Psalms, if you look at Psalm 85, verse 2. 85, verse 2. Here we have the people in the presence of God. Lord, thou hast been favourable unto our land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. And you will find other references where this being brought back from captivity is a prophetic term concerning the time when Israel shall enter into their blessedness. Well, I don't think it's accidental that that word is used here by the writer of Job to, uh, as it were, explain Job's release, Job's restoration, and in some measure gives us a hint, for this is a picture of Israel's restoration when their day shall dawn as well. Well, now that means um, we must move on because our time is running, and there's another feature here that I think is most important. Verse 10, it says, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And if you go to the trouble, you will discover that the number of um, sheep and camels and oxen that he had in the first chapter is just exactly doubled in verse 12. And he lost his seven sons and his three daughters, and he has seven sons and three daughters back again. And we are told, so far as Job is concerned, uh, that he lived 140 years. And it looks as though the suggestion is that he also had these term of life doubled. Now you know as well as I do when I say those words doubled, that uh, it's an expression that we come across in the, uh, many times in connection with the people of Israel. Uh, but there are some things to be watched over this, and you may not find them on the surface at first. First of all, we'll read the one in, in Isaiah 61, verse 7. After speaking about them being priests of the Lord in verse 6, For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion ye shall, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. Well, there you, you've got Job. He received double. Literally double the number of the animals he lost. Literally having his family restored. And that's the first thing. But, there's another aspect. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 40, if you will. Isaiah 40. Here is Israel restored. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now we'd have to slip over that and read it as though it were the gospel that we understand. Uh, but when it says 
Her iniquity is pardoned for. She hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What does this mean? Because it, it's rather as though she's already received double, and then she's pardoned. Well, let's go quietly and carefully and look at one or two passages. Ezekiel 21, 14. Ezekiel 21, 14. Thou therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite thine hands together and let the sword be doubled. The third time. Let it be doubled. This is judgment for thee. And um, you will find that it is a, a principle in law. In the Exodus 22, uh, when anything has been done wrong and has to be restored, uh, it's a restoration of double. Let's look at Exodus 22, verse 4. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Now there are other passages, but I, I want to get to this one, in case I miss it. First of all, with regard to Isaiah 40, Dr. Young's literal translation reads, Not they have received at the Lord's hand double as though they are receiving a blessing, but that accepted hath been her punishment. Not blessed in the sense of being saved, but who is at last bowed in the presence of the Lord and accepted the double because of that was the meat of their punishment. And that is according to the margin of the revised version. Now we'll turn to a passage which I think will be explicit on this. Leviticus 26 verses 40 to 42. Now this is not gospel. This is law. Twenty-six, forty. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespassed against me and that also they have walked contrary unto me and that I have also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they should accept the punishment of their iniquity. There are the, the words, accept the punishment. Not to be graciously accepted, but to accept something. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac. So we have that. And you remember in the book of the Revelation, uh, where it says, as she has dealt unto others, deal unto her double. It's a principle. Well now you see, Job, he had the blessed doubling. He had a restoration that was doubled. But the very fact that it's emphasized there, and linking on prophetically and typically with Israel, helps us to see that there was this other side too. Now once more back or forward to the last chapter of the book of Job for a few more references. Job 42, we find him acting as a priest, offering. We find him receiving gifts from the three friends. We find his brethren coming back to him, verse 11. They'd all left him, but now they return. And um, then we have the statement concerning 
his family. Or rather like this verse 14, it says that he called the name of the first, that's the daughters, you're not, you're not told the name of his sons, and you're not told they were very good looking. Uh, but that doesn't matter so much, I suppose. But it did matter about the three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Havoc. Well, I think we've heard of ladies who've been named Jemima, and I think Keziah. And if you lived in some remote English village of, what, 50, 60 or 100 years back, you would meet somebody who was named Karen Havoc, but I don't think you'll meet them today. Now these have got meanings. Jemima can mean, it's possible, there's a little doubt about this, it can mean a dove. But it also can mean, as it were, coming forth as the day. And that's what Job did. As the day. At last the day has dawned. And they gave their children prophetic, typical names. Jemima. Keziah is the word Cassia. It's to do with the, the fragrance in connection uh, with priesthood and so on, I believe. And it's mentioned in Psalm 45, verse 8, the queen's daughter and the embroidery and being beautiful and so on. And then Heron Hapak. The word Heron, K-E-R-E-N, is the word, I, I wouldn't say it entered into our language, because that may be a false etymology, but it's the word horn, H-O-R-N, K-E-R-N, Karen, Heron, horn. And the word tapak is the word that means paint. In other words, the third girl was called Paintbox. Now that could be uh, rather a bad remark for anybody today. So, oh, she looks like a paint box. And the word, I think, is used in a wrong sense sometimes in Scripture. But you know as well as I do, Karen Hathak, she never got a complexion over the chemist's counter. Oh no. I think it's one of those indications that we're glad to see that although Job had a loathsome disease which ate his flesh away, God says, when that ransom is accepted, then shall his flesh be like a child's. Restoration was complete. The glory of resurrection anticipated as far as it could be. And his three girls, one called either a dove or coming out into the daylight, the other one cassia and the other one paintbox. And this very word is used of the restoration of Jerusalem, I will set their stones in fair colours. So now we've got the story, you see. We've seen the man prospering at the beginning. We've seen him offering sacrifices lest his children had committed sin. We see him going down into the depths of the valley. We see him ultimately brought back. We see him offering again for the departure from truth of the three friends. We see his family and his possessions restored. And there is the sequel. We have heard of the patience of Job and we've seen the end of the Lord. Now I feel that these studies will be valuable if they are, if they are used to give you a spur to go back and start all over again. It's one thing 
to stand here with a book like Job and to have all those wheels going round and know if you hesitate for a minute or two it's going to record a gap and the people at the other end will say I wonder what's happened to him now he can't, he can't think of the right word he doesn't know what to say that's very true friends but now you've got these hints the general layout of the book the insistence in the structure Elihu right in the middle that's not accident or when you come to the nine discourses of Job I know that my redeemer liveth right in the middle that's no accident those things are all there waiting for you and all these other things that are suggested the sweep of knowledge manifested by these men if you like to look up Teman and Temanites you'll know that they were proverbial for their wisdom and yet in spite of all that, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And Job was, was the one who taught the lesson and has taught it to us. Well now we say goodbye so far as these meetings are concerned to the story of Job. But there it lies at the threshold of scripture. It posits as it were the enigma of the ages. It doesn't give a solution completely. But it does give a little light that if Job was one of the true seeds, as the word perfect indicates, he was the mark of Satan, for he, was, he couldn't tolerate it, for he'd got his own seed. And so he plastered Job with that abominable disease. But eventually, Job triumphed, even as every child of God will triumph, but in God's good time. Meanwhile, what a need there is for that one thing which we speak so much about and have so little. He has need of, Patience. So may the Lord grant it unto us, every one of us, especially as we know in the New Testament, it's the patience of hope. And that's the one thing that sustained this man right through, that at long last he would see the light and be restored.